friends, Romans, countrymen, let me your ears. Hello, everyone. You are listening to the MC Lars podcast. This is episode 117. It is Wednesday, March 3rd, 2021. It's crazy to think that we've been in lockdown for a year now almost. Um, March 21st is the anniversary of The Graduate. That record will be 15 years old, which is crazy. That album opened a lot of doors. I'm sure a lot of you listening found me from that era of my discography. And so it's always an interesting time of the year when I think about how much I enjoy still doing music, still doing these other projects. This podcast started uh, September 2018. I brought it back after like a long hiatus. I first started it 2006-ish and then took a break and brought it back. And it's been a lot of fun. So it's a lot of milestones right now. My first show as MC Lars was March 10th, I think, or 11th of 2000. 2000. So 21 years of doing this. It's crazy. Um, <laughs> episode 117. This episode is with Chesky Ramos, who is a musician I met, we we crossed paths briefly on the last show of my tour with MC Chris, Megaran, and Adam Warrock in 2011. We both played the Knitting Factory in Brooklyn. I think it was called Luna Lounge then, or maybe it was Knitting Factory, I don't know. But we met for a second, and we played on South by Southwest showcases together, a bunch of different stuff. We both played um, Alias's memorial show uh, in Manhattan a few years ago, and we kind of kept in touch. And so I asked him if he'd be on the podcast. We did the podcast remotely, obviously, but we realized we both lived in Oakland in the Bay Area at the same time. And we had shared memories about hip hop, uh, the the fire, um, the earthquake, all this stuff, and the Simpsons. So that was tight talking to him. Um, I am doing my Lars War series on Patreon, patreon.com slash mclars. Shout out to the Patreon Larsians who make this happen. Shout out to the new ones. Matthew, David, and Corey, I appreciate y'all signing up. Thank you so much. It means a lot to me. And shout out to the old ones, John, Colin, and Christina. This episode is brought to you by them. Uh, we have the Empire Strikes Back song dropping soon, which is arguably, actually unarguably, the best of all the Star Wars movies. You might disagree, but... That movie is just amazing. One of the best movies of all time, actually. Um, and so I'm dropping my song about that shortly. And then A Caravan of Courage, an Ewok adventure, which is another Star Wars movie, which isn't so lauded. So sign up if you want to check out my Lars Wars songs. I did my holiday special track, which I think came out pretty well. <laughs> so I'm having a lot of fun with it. Thanks to everyone who's been watching our Four-Eyed Horseman shows. Oh, my goodness. Like... Y'all keep coming and watching and supporting. We have the best fans in the world. I'm sorry. I can't deny it. Y'all are so generous, and it's fun to keep performing, even though we can't tour right now. And I appreciate y'all. So the next one is March 27th. Um, it's with Frontalot, Mega Ran, Chief of the Dark Lord, and a surprise opener. So I'll be posting more about that. So now it's time for the question of the week. I asked a question on social media The Larsons drop knowledge just like Wikipedia to think about this or that, let me guess These are the messages that some of y'all left Please leave a message after the tone Alright, so since this podcast is now monthly, it used to be weekly uh, I didn't give much time for y'all to call in and answer this But I was amazed by how quickly, in just like a day or two People called in. So maybe that's what I'll do. I'll announce the question closer to the podcast release time. Our first caller is from Ryan in Columbus, Ohio. I really wish I could answer that question, but I've never seen The Simpsons. I've never, ever watched The Simpsons. 
Have a good day. Wow, huge, huge. I don't know if you're serious, but I feel like you may be. But for someone who's so funny and knows a lot about popular culture, I am a little surprised. But that's okay. Um, What was I going to say? Sometimes there are people who have never seen The Simpsons, never seen Star Wars. And at this point, that's kind of like a badge of honor. And But I'm sure there's enough about the culture you can absorb through osmosis. Like, I'm sure you could tell me who Bart is. Um you know who the da- what the dad's name is, right? So uh, thanks for calling in, huge, huge, aka Ryan. Okay, now we got Rico calling from Kentucky. This is the Rico calling from Kentucky area. Uh, my favorite Simpsons character is Hans Mole Man because I can't get that Mole Man. Hans Mole Man can't keep Hans Mole Man down. Song out of my head, and that's about the most I know about the Simpsons. So um, spread joy. Combat misery, and remember, the Rico loves you. Cheer, cheer, Rico. You have a beautiful singing voice. Hans Moment is my favorite character too. Thank you for calling in. I'm currently doing my master's right now in, um, in instructional science and technology, and one of the people we're studying this week is uh, Bandura, who is a psychologist who believes in the social learning theory. And I think about that how like stuff like going cheer and all the Weird things I do when people do them back to me makes me think of Bandura and how we learn from each other or we we teach each other ways to interact with the world consciously or not. But that message made my day. Thanks, homie. Next, we got a call from Ray up in Salem, Oregon. What up, man? This is Ray from Salem, Sostown, Oregon. Uh, my favorite Simpsons character is actually the town of Springfield. And hear me out here. It is the only character that has been in pretty much every episode of the show. It is a dynamic character. Uh, we like certain things about it from back in the day. We like things they've changed to it. We don't like certain things they've changed to it. And it's also one of the only characters that's taken for granted. It might be a town, but every one of our favorite characters interacts with Springfield in a unique way that ties them to the other character. So I hope that wasn't too made of an answer, but I'm a big fan of Springfield in the town. And uh, being from Oregon, we got our own Springfield, so I'm going to dip out that way and uh, – Enjoy a walk. Take it easy. Ray, that was tight as heck. Great creative answer. Now, a location I guess I wouldn't call a character, but I guess you could say it's a, well, it's a location, but it's an integral part of the show. So therefore, it is important. You you, you took that question and you spinned it and made it unique. Now, I was thinking about this the other day. Matt Groening uh, grew up in Oregon, right, and went to Evergreen State. Uh, college in Olympia, Washington, but all the streets in Portland, a lot of them are names of characters on The Simpsons. So Springfield is named after Springfield, Oregon, even though the show never specifically says. I think that's a very good point you made, Ray, and I appreciate you calling. Okay, now we got Michael from up in Rochester. Michael, who's your favorite Simpsons character? Hey, this is Michael from Rochester, New York, and my favorite character on The Simpsons is Disco Stew, but he don't advertise, man. Thank you, Michael. That was great, and uh, I appreciate you keeping it short. You know, I was thinking in 2017, I was going to do a whole record about the lesser-known characters from The Simpsons. I wanted to do a disco stew song, make it a disco song, obviously, and that project never materialized. But, you know, the characters do stay evergreen, and I think that would be an interesting premise for an album. I did the Notes from Toontown record. So I was going to do Notes from Springfield. I was going to do a Harry Potter one called Notes from Hogwarts. And uh, I want to do one about the Pridane Chronicles, Notes from Pridane. 
which is what the Disney movie The Black Cauldron is inspired by. So, you know, there's always a ton of stuff to do. I also want to do a bunch of LPs about authors like Shakespeare. I want to do a Poe LP, a Melville LP. So that's what's up. There's a lot going on that I want to do in this life. Will I do it? We'll see. Who's who's to know? But one thing that I need to do is not be like Disco Stew, and I need to advertise these projects. Okay, next we got Rick from Grand Junction, Colorado. Hey, Lars, this is Rick from Grand Junction, Colorado. Initially, I wanted to say Jessica Lovejoy. You know, she was perfectly played by Meryl Streep. She's too much of a one-off character. That being said, I'm uh, I'm really a big fan of Jasper because he perfectly encapsulates old senility, the, the, the futile fight against, you know, maintaining our youth. Um, the dude just forgets everything, is aloof, uh, has nothing but contempt for the young, um, is, of course, bewildered by the new. Um, I think Jasper represents an element in us that, you know, we should embrace getting old and, you know, the challenges that come with it. That being said, uh, what a time to be alive, 2021. Shout out, man. Yo, Rick, shout out back to you. Thanks for calling in. That was a good answer. Yeah, um, the Lovejoy daughter is a great character. We didn't see much of her, but that's a great one. But Jasper is is an amazing character, and I love him. And you know who he's boys with? Hans Molman. That's what's up. Okay, we got one last call. Uh, this call is from Darion in Citrus Heights, California. What's up, Andrew? It's Darion, and I'm calling from Citrus Heights, California, and I think my favorite character is definitely Hans Molman. This man is incredible. He was born in 1921, probably one of the oldest characters. Uh, he was once the mayor of Springfield. Uh, just like me as a DJ, he was on a morning radio show, uh, KJAZZ FM, I believe. He introduced himself as this is Mole Man in the morning. Good morning, good Mole Man to you. Uh, and he's had multiple, multiple jobs in the series as well as died multiple times and always seems to come back. The guy is freaking practically blind, but seems to be in the worst case scenarios ever. This guy is incredible. I love Hans Mole Man. And uh, good to see you too, man. Peace out. Darian, thanks for calling in. That dude went to church with me, and uh, Darian made a lot of hilarious prank calls. Um, may, he may or may not have. I, that, that's the rumor, allegedly. And uh, he was a DJ whose brother, uh, Thesaurus, is a famous battle rapper. Anyway, Darian, that was tight. You called in. I actually texted him. I was going to play him the message, and he had never heard my Hans Molman song, so I sent him a link to the video because, you know, it's tight that people I grew up with independently love Hans Molman and people from the Bay freaking love the Simpsons. People around the world love the Simpsons, but on this interview with Chesky, we're going to talk about how the Simpsons Sing the Blues was our first CD, both of us, um, how, you know, hip hop and a lot and punk rock were inspirational in a similar way and just basically what it's been like to stay sane during COVID. So I really enjoyed this interview. So let's jump right into it. This is my interview with a legendary Chesky Ramos. Hello, 
everyone. You are listening to the MC Lars podcast. I'm talking remotely to Chesky, and this is a man I've known about for a long time. We reconnected at the Benefit for Alias a few years ago, and uh, this man makes great videos. He has a really good live show. He is one of the geniuses behind Fake Four, and um, he's been killing it for a minute, so it's an honor to have him on the show. How you been, man? How you doing? Thanks for having me, Lars. I've been, I've been all right. You know, uh, just hanging in there, trying to create during these times. Yeah, are you still in Connecticut, or where are you these days? Yeah, I when I when the quarantine, uh, when lockdown started, I I was actually in L- in L.A. So I was out there for about four months, and then drove all the way back to uh, New Haven. Um, um, I have an apartment here in New Haven with my roommate Mo. But I, I mostly been staying with my family, so at my mother's. <laughs> so I'm sort of like reverting back to childhood in a lot of ways. So how long did it take you to drive from LA back to the East Coast? I did a pretty monstrous. I didn't really stop much other than for gas, and I was ultra careful, just doing the whole like gloved up, masked up, like <laughs> everything. Yeah, you know, just so I, I, I just. I went straight through. Um, I drove long hours every day, so it took me three days. Wow! And did so? Did you really sleep at all, or did you just nap a little bit? Or yeah, I slept. Uh, I um, I noticed that the Hilton. I I, I don't want to like promote the Hilton brand on here, but but the uh, Hilton brand is really good about um, cleanliness and their procedures for COVID. Um, they had some sort of, they had some sort of deal with Lysol or whatever. So they were just, they, I ended up staying at, um, Hilton's and I had some, um, I had some points from tour. So it, it worked out. Did you go through like Denver or did you go through Texas or? Yeah, I went through Denver. I did, um, I did, uh, I think it's I 80 East all the way. Yeah, pretty much that was it. I, and I've done that so many fucking times. I can't even tell you. So that's crazy. So you okay? So you you got <laughs> back, and so you're staying with your family because I'm sure what they need help, and you want to be there for them. Or is it like what what's the what was the impetus for that? You're just looking after them. I'm really close with my family, and they are extremely cautious because my niece and my mother both have medical conditions that we have to be very cautious around. So the the least, I, I try to, I don't really get out of here much. I'm, pr- I'm pretty much um, here and I don't really see too many people. And I do go to the apartment occasionally, maybe once a week, um, sometimes twice a week. But mostly I'm just being extremely cautious and hanging out with my immediate family. You can look at this situation in one of two ways, right? Because you and I and anyone listening who's who's a road dog knows that being on tour is like a rush and it's a way to make money and it's fulfilling and satisfying, but it also can feel like a bit of a hamster wheel sometimes. And for often I'd be like, man, I wish I could just take a year off and work on something I really believe <laughs> yeah, in. And, right? Have you have you ever had that thought? Oh, very, very much so. Very. I've had those thoughts all the time, and I'll always book <laughs> like, oh, only twenty more shows, only thirty more. You know, <laughs> I'll just like book my ass off and and just book my entire year before it's done. You know, 
And um and I realized that was never really gonna happen. So this kind of forced me into that space. Um and it's odd because it hasn't been the most creative time for me. It's been a really uh difficult time. I I've sort of I've sort of I don't know. I I've had I have uh big ambitions and I have big projects in on my mind, but uh for me to actually finish something has become a challenge. I, I can relate, man. Do you feel so I'm wondering if you feel like it's kind of stultifying being like you, your music is very passionate and full of this live energy. So is it hard to be like shouting in a mic, knowing your family's in the other room or? Oh, hell yeah. 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 That's, that's really difficult. So one thing I did do during this time is that I, I, um, I started renting a studio with like seven, six other people. And so I get one day a week there. And it's just a place for me to get really loud and be alone and and um, record collaborations, which I I'm really really bad about getting done. To be honest, I'm I'm, I'm a really terrible procrastinator, and um, yeah. So it's been it's a it's an outlet for me. Yeah, um, having this studio in New Haven, it's like an old factory building. Nobody's really there. Um, it's pretty huge and empty and I could just be loud as I want. And it's a great, it's a great situation. Um, wow. That sounds like a lifeline. That sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah. Just getting away also from, I feel like since I came back, I, I'm, I'm rarely alone and it's kind of strange because at the end of my time in LA, I, I was actually alone quite a bit and I was getting really used to being in my room and just kind of not going anywhere. And, uh, and, um, now I'm surrounded by my loud family and dogs. And, <laughs> and so it's a big shift. <laughs> so are you the type of artist who feels more inspired when you're like by yourself in LA with your thoughts and maybe your guitar, or are you someone who feels inspired by, trying to steal away moments to work when you're around like chaos more often than not i'm just a very distracted person i'm an easily mm. distracted person so for me i probably won't get something done if there's too much noise around or if i don't have a deadline or something like that you know so more often than not if i'm alone and i can focus on something or i have a guitar around i'll i'll make something you know, that's it's more common. Did you have any tours that you had to cancel or anything? Or how did, like, yeah, let's talk about that. Cause I yeah, so the whole thing was um, I was living, I had this spot in L.A. with my manager. And um, we, the lease was running out. So I had, my my last tour was in March. And these were tours that I, you know, they were how I was paying the bills. I, I needed to do them. And um, so my, my last tour ended early March, maybe the first weekend of March, something like that. Um, and then I think the, the weeks after it, I had a bunch of spot dates in major cities like 
Chicago, Philly, New York, places like that, and New Haven. And um, what I was going to do was go back, basically pack whatever I had in L.A. and drive, do a driving tour all the way up into Canada, um, all the way up the West Coast, all the way into Canada, and then all the way to Connecticut eventually. And so all of those shows I set up and that whole studio time I set up in Canada because I work with uh, Factor Chandelier in uh, Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, Canada. He's my producer. And so that was part of the trip I had planned. All of that got canceled. And then mm. um, my f- first extensive UK tour got canceled too. So, mm. so all of that at once. And yeah, so what ended up happening is that our lease was pushed back to June. Um, it was originally going to end in April. So I ended up staying there almost all of March, um, April, May, and, and finally left in June. I mean, it worked out, but yeah, it was all, it, at that time, especially, it was such a shock. Um, that the landlord was fairly cool about it, um, and we all we we just really had nowhere to go. So that's pretty much how it happened. And, and yeah, so yeah, I got a a lot of stuff got canceled though. Yeah, I've been talking on the podcast to artists when they are thinking they'll be safe to want to tour again. Like, are you looking into 2021 further into the year? Or are you kind of waiting? Like what's your business plan with that? I'm waiting, man. Cause, uh, I don't know. I feel, I don't want to come up with a date or estimate. I've, I've already tried to do that a couple times and it just didn't work. So I'm just going to wait until we have more of a solid time. I do have a rough date for my next album release, though, and I'll probably mm. I'll probably stick to that, and that'll be November twenty twenty one. And I, I I told myself I wouldn't put it out until I could tour, but more than likely I'm gonna put it put out my next album um, in November twenty twenty one. Is it done? Or are you still working on it? <laughs> I th- at one point in time I thought it was actually done. And this is last year, and I was actually going to put it out, and now it's just become this monstrosity of a four-part prog rap folk punk album. I don't even know what the fuck it is, and I'm still figuring that out, to be honest. So, yeah, it's basically like a double album, but each side is almost like a is like a part in itself. How did you discover punk rock, and like how did growing up in New Haven influence your relationship to that subculture? I have kind of a curious uh, upbringing, and I didn't actually totally grow up in New Haven. So um, I moved to New Haven when I was a, like 13. Okay. Uh, so, But I lived my childhood. I lived a lot of places growing up, but um, the majority of my childhood was spent in Berkeley, California. So, Oh. So punk rock, I learned about – I, I I actually look back sometimes I have little notebooks that I used to draw in when I was like seven, eight years old, and there would be punk rockers drawn inside of that. So I apparently I knew about punk rock really young. Um 
and that was like some, some something I would notice just around Berkeley. And um, eventually, I went to the Gilman Street Club, nine two four Gilman, mm. which I've got luckily been able to play at a lot um, in my older age, <laughs> in my more in more recent years. But uh, but uh, also, I should I should say my cousin was. My cousin's ten years older than me, and he he was a punk drummer since I was like six years old, you know. So he, he's mostly a thrash metal drummer, but um, he got me knowing about that whole world of underground music. And as soon as I moved to Connecticut, he was inviting me. He was he's always been like a DIY kind of metal dude, um, hardcore punk dude whatever and um he was inviting me to underground hardcore shows or metal shows and um so i remember going to this club as, as my first year in connecticut i remember going to a club called the tune in and that's where eventually i i used to just hang out no matter what genre was there i'd go there every weekend and um and hang out and go to shows. So um, a lot of it was punk. If it wasn't punk music, it was the punk subculture. You know what I'm saying? Like it mm -hmm. it was it could have been a ska show or a hardcore show, but or a, even a hip hop show once in a while. But it always had this kind of like DIY ethic to it, and and this sort of. It was part of this punk subculture. I don't know if you knew this. I actually grew up in Montclair, um, and I was oh. born in Alta Bates in Berkeley. Oh, crazy! Yeah, of course, in Alta Bates. Yeah, 1989, we ended up in Berkeley. Yeah. Um, yeah, that changed my. I, that really built a lot of the influence. I influences I still have. You know, I think about where we grow up and how that influences our art and um shit mm. i was listening to public enemy by the time i was nine you know i was listening yeah. to you know i was going to the ashby flea market and buying cassette tapes of whatever i can get my hands on which was mostly just the dirtiest rap i could find so it's like <laughs> i remember ice cube kill at will was one of those tapes i remember i would i got i just get like bootlegs of two live crew and nwa shit and yeah, I mean, it's a big reason why I I, I rapped. It's just because of where I grew up and lived in that neighborhood. You know, and that was that's the cool thing about the Bay, especially that period. Like you had, um, you know, the thrash stuff coming out, like Primus and all that. But also, it wasn't so weird to be listening to Too Short and Operation Ivy on the same car trip, or you'd hear it like you on. Ashby, you'd hear a car drive by playing right. E forty or something, and then you'd hear, and then you'd hear Minor Threat. Like it, it all was an amalgamation, which didn't feel that disjunct. And it's interesting. I realize now the Bay is special in that way because music was kind of like separated. I don't know along you could say racial lines or cultural lines outside of like outside of that. I mean, of course there are diverse cities, but the Bay was special and that it didn't seem weird. Do you? Would you agree or? I completely agree. It was, it was, it felt really normal. Yeah. Um, to me, and I think being being the age I was, I just didn't think about it. All of it was really cool, older older people shit to me, 
Because I, I literally remember meeting Too Short. I remember I used to go to, um, this is funny, but I used to go to Lake Merritt for sailing camp, which is <laughs> really. That's tight. <laughs> there was a, a like an inner city sailing camp thing that we would do. And um, I met Too Short there when I was little. He was just happened to be walking around there and I was a fan. I was a fan of what he was doing and I was a fan of Metallica and Metallica's from the Bay too. Can't forget the Bay was exactly as you said, it was also a big thrash place. So I found out about a lot of thrash metal that my cousin also loved and, you know, Op Ivy and that whole scene. Um, Green Day, we can't forget Green Day. Uh, Mm. Right. Billy Joe actually lived across the street from my school for some time. So there was um That's tight. And you know, I I had chances to meet him or I've definitely seen him in person and I had already become really um I was, I was so underground and cool that I didn't think he was cool anymore at, at certain <laughs> point, but but yeah, I mean it wasn't it was really an amalgamation of all these cultures and they and it was all together and and it's funny looking back um, at my little notebooks of drawings and journals, how that formed me, you know? Because actually where I was in um, Berkeley, it was the line of Oakland. So if you know where the Ashby Flea Market is, I lived blocks away from there. Mm. And um, where we were, especially when during the time when we were there, my school was like 90% black, you know? So for me, my my reason for rapping was all from going to school there and um, my friends there getting me into that and, and just fucking around and rapping. I didn't really think much of it. I don't remember why I rapped other than it was just a thing that we did for fun, you know? And, um, and, I, and when I heard the, the metal and punk shit, I thought it was all kind of cool and and um, you know we're just like little kids figuring this shit out. I thought it was um, abrasive and rude and things I liked, you know, <laughs> like yeah. like they had had bad language or you know it was just kind of stuff to like piss piss our parents off or whatever. So you you were there during the '89 earthquake and the '91 fire. Right? I was. Both of those. Yes, both Me of them. Too. And they both had yeah. major impact on my life. For, I, I think about them way more than I probably should. <laughs> but yeah, um, I was there. And I was a big A's. I was a big Oakland A's fan. So for Yo, me. Yeah, me um, too. And I was a big Jose Canseco fan specifically. So I, uh, Bash Brothers era, 1989 earthquake. I'll never forget that day, man. I remember because we were playing. I really, really wanted to watch the World Series game that day, and we were. I think we were going to go to Laval's Pizza, if you remember that place. Yeah, totally. And that's like where kids would go. There's video games and shitty pizza, but like you know, pizza that tasted great to a kid because whatever. I mean, you know, shitty pizza is good pizza too. But, <laughs> but um, yeah, that's where we get, we were going to go watch the game there after soccer practice. I played soccer, and um, I remember there's this big cement wall on the right near our soccer field, and it started just shaking, shaking, shaking. Like it looked like it was about to fall on top of you know 
30 kids. And um, I'll never forget that moment. And I'll never forget coming back to our little apartment where we lived on Oregon Street. And um, and everything in the apartment. I mean, everything was just on the ground. Like, you know, bookshelves, everything just thrown around. Um, and then the fires, the, the fire, 1991 fire. Yeah. Uh, I remember biking with, um, I remember that day very specifically too, cause it just looks so crazy. And now, now I think people, because of, because we've been, they've been seeing the fires in California on TV and how the sky looks so crazy. Um, they can maybe get an idea of it, but I had never seen anything like that at that time and watching the hills burning down and the entire sky turn gray with this bright orange um sun behind it and this sort of i don't know i just it was such a apocalyptic feeling i just remember biking and it was a little bit chilly and just seeing this under this gray day i was just biking with one of my best friends um in lacan elementary school which is a school that's on uh, Oregon Street, and it's, you probably know Berkeley pretty well. And it's 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 kind of, it's between a uh, it's between Shattuck and Telegraph, basically. People theorize that the '89 earthquake is the reason why the A's won because the Giants were in the lead in that game that that got canceled, right? And that or they had a they had a momentum of a winning streak, and that if the earthquake hadn't happened, the A's would have lost. Have you heard that theory? Um, no, cause I'm a diehard ACE fan and I will never, <laughs> I'll never believe that now. <laughs> now, nah, but that's, that's, that's possible. <laughs> uh, to me, in my mind as an eight year old or whatever I was at that time, uh, the A's were unstoppable, you know, right. so that was, <laughs> and it's pretty much the only baseball team I've ever really liked. So. Um, I remember the story of like some of them helping bring uh, lemonade and water to the firemen who were trying to help people get out from under the Cypress freeway. Do you remember hearing about that? Like the A's players during their downtime were there helping the firemen. I was like, these, these people are heroes. That's awesome. Yeah. I don't remember that story specifically, but that's awesome. And I do, I guess another thing I should mention is like MC hammer. And, and I think maybe part of the reason I liked MC Hammer so much was because of his connection to the A's. <laughs> right. And yeah. um, he was a bat boy for the A's, right? So yeah. um, that's kind of how he came up. And and I remember being in third grade, and we would have breaks and listen to Hammer in the classroom. I mean, rap was a big part of our just every day. You know what I mean? It was just that era of just you know a lot a lot of like black power stuff you know Malcolm yeah. X shirts everywhere and just and it was just a big part of my upbringing um and the bootleg Simpsons Black Bart Simpson like that was huge <laughs> yes Simpsons too the Simpsons came out that same exact time that's yeah. when the Simpsons pretty sure 89 is when the Simpsons um came out um, as its own series after the Tracy Ullman show. Yeah, and that was a big influence too. So It's crazy. It, I mean, <laughs> but MC Lars was a 
that's a shout out to MC Hammer. Of course, MC MC is everywhere, but he was the first rapper I really loved, and like that's a nod to my Oakland <laughs> origin. That's amazing. I love that. I really love that. I love that we have this kind of shared childhood history. That's dope. Um, yeah, God, cool. I loved Hammer too. He wasn't the first rapper I loved because uh, I actually discovered the Fat Boys and being oh. a f- and being a fat kid myself. I was just like. <laughs> I love these guys, and I remember watching them on uh, MTV. With um, I didn't even have MTV. It was that we? I was uh, dog sitting for a neighbor, and uh, he had MTV on, and the Fat Boys had a video with the Beach Boys. It's like Kokomo or something like that, but it, it was oh, okay. like a remix of Kokomo. I don't know, but uh, they had a song together, and I thought it was the fuck. It was the coolest thing, and I was probably like five <laughs> years old. Yeah. Or so that was the first rapping I really heard. And um, yeah, and then I got, I mean, not to get all into the childhood shit, but uh, I had an uncle who, for my, had an uncle here on the East Coast that for, I think, my sixth or sixth birthday or so, maybe seventh birthday, uh, gifted me a Casio keyboard, SK, SK5, I think it was. Which is a sampling? It's a mi- it's a miniature sampling keyboard, and I started fucking around and making songs on it, basically, and recording it into a, a Fisher Price tape deck. And yeah, <laughs> rap, raps just happened. You know what I mean? They just happened. It was a very natural thing. That yeah, around this time that we're all talking about around the earthquake. Yeah. Hammer time and 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 the A's between yeah, that's when I first started rapping was around the same time as the earthquake and yeah. During the Oakland Hills fire, we evacuated out to Livermore to stay with my mom's parents, my grandparents, and I remember the Simpsons sing the blues like would do the Bartman and stuff. I, I'd listen to that and it made me feel less scared because yep. we were we you know the fire. We were up in the hills and like our house was a block away from being burned. We were lucky to be near the fire station up there. So like we came back and like our neighbors, it was crazy, dude. You go a block. And so I remember we were scared because we didn't know. And so that learning the song was like a therapeutic, learning the album was a therapeutic way to get through that. So it's weird talking about now, but you can relate like how this idea that the earth might shake the ground underneath you and destroy your house. Yep. Your house might be gone in a minute, but we'll always have music and we'll always have like self-expression. And that is something that's in, intangible, but transcends all this. And it's resonating with the energy of the Bay. Like, like those three things. Yeah. I've never chopped it up with an artist who can feel me on that, but like, it's, it's, oh, I feel you so heavily. And that album specifically was the fir- first, uh, that's the first CD I ever got. Yo, me too. My mother, that's me my too. My mother, um, I had tapes before that, but my mother, she one one Christmas or whatever, she, she surprised us with a boombox with a CD player, and and Sing, Simpson sing the blues was the first CD she gave us. Oh my god. Um. So that's yeah. <laughs> I feel that so deeply, and I remember thinking about um the Bay Bridge a lot mm-hmm. at that time and how. Cars were falling through the hole in the bay. I mean, it was this really frightening moment. Just thinking about death a lot and really being confronted with that at an early age. Um, 
yeah, it was it was actually kind of traumatic. I think probably yeah. for a lot of people that that grew up during that era there. I I did a record where there's it's called the Zombie Dinosaur album and the and it's a zombie T Rex with an Ace hat tearing up the Golden Gate Bridge. But I just dis- oh I think I saw that <laughs> that yeah and then, I love that image. Yeah, thanks, man. Great. That was inspired by the Bay Bridge collapsing and the way the physics of the bridge are dangling between his giant arms was like a <laughs> referenced on that. It's kind of dark, but it was my way of channeling that. And of course, he's. You know, the A's hat with the Golden Gate. It's like a diss to the San Francisco sort of. But <laughs> <laughs> eventually, I should say, I should note that eventually, I uh, uh, a man that I could. He's pretty much like an uncle to me, and he still um, he still sells cactus at at the Berkeley Flea Market. Oh wow! He was my he's my friend Derek's father. I'm sorry, he's my friend Carlos's father. His name is Derek. And he uh, he still sells. He's still the cactus man at the Ashby Flea Market. But he brought us to a a Giants game, and uh, and we we saw the Grateful Dead sing the national anthem at the at a Giants game once. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That's a very Bay Area moment. It's a very very. This is right, maybe like a year before Jerry Garcia died. Too. Wow. Oh, I remember we were when Jerry Garcia died. We were up at um, up at Tahoe, and um, this Chronicle the fr- the the cover story was that he died. It was like the headline news. And I was like, oh, I had never put it together that they were just so regionally revered there that the death of a I've never seen the death of a musician on the front page of a newspaper. You know, I was like, wow, that was oh yeah, that was oh, crazy. that's big in the Bay Area. Yeah, I remember that was a sad day for for Derek because we were because. Uh, I should I should I should also say that we moved to Connecticut to New Haven with my mother when my parents got officially divorced but I would go back to the bay cuz my father ended up staying in Berkeley and Oakland um till just recently um so he so we go back to the bay every summer mm. and visit him and so Jerry Garcia died during one of those summer I believe it was a summer or spring break where we were visiting and um, I remember my friend Carlos's father just like in tears and making a shitload of guacamole that day. <laughs> yeah. It was like his entire day. It was, I mean, he had seen like 260 dead shows. You know what I mean? Wow. So. That, and that was the, uh, you know, I had a friend whose mom was really into the dead and she, they'd have all these fresh bootlegs. And I started getting very interested in like r- the legalities of, uh, taping shows and this whole idea of the file sharing pre-file sharing where they were like endorsing yeah. like the dicks picks stuff like endorsing the right. and I, I thought that was interesting because like I learned a lot about audio from listening to these different tapes and how she rated them and how they were recorded and like the difference between holding a tape recorder in the crowd and so that was cool on a technical level like and plus I thought you Definitely. know yeah they, they that was a cool like kind of um I guess populist, or I don't know the right way to say it, a way of giving music back to the fans and letting the fans own it. And that's a, that's kind of punk in a way, maybe you could say in a way. Yeah. I remember, <laughs> I remember Derek had just like those huge cassette, um, cases, you know, they could fill like a hundred cassettes in it and he would, they would just be full of bootlegs and, <laughs> and he would just tell me about each show. And it was, 
I never really got into that music or understood it, but I, I, there was something about the culture that I always really appreciated. Let's fast forward. So you came east, and I guess I don't want to skip over too much, but I'd love to talk about the genesis of Fake Four. I know you've probably talked about this a lot in interviews, but how, how, how you, how you led, what led you to that, and um, the benefits of you know, for people listening of how to uh, building community in this age of like really siloed, um, you know, creative process, like, like how that's benefited, mm-hmm. you know, like if you, if you don't mind speaking about that. Yeah, no, I don't mind. It's actually a great um, time to answer that question too, because I feel like 2008, when I started Fake Four, at least in my life, it was a very similar year to this one. Mm. And that sounds strange, but for me, I was in LA. I um, I was spending. I was basically living in LA. I, I was in a band called Toca, and we were we had been working on this project for at, at this point probably close to five years, and we were we had a development deal with Snoop Dogg's management team in wow. LA, and it was this whole crazy kind of thrown into Hollywood experience. And we were figuring it out. We were in our 20s, you know, figuring this shit out. And we came from this very DIY background. And we didn't, especially at the time, I didn't really like anyone telling me what to do with my music. I, I, you know, I was like all about, we, we, what we, we looked at ourselves as sort of uh, like a Mr. Bungle meets Project Blowed hip hop band, you know? So we were we were just not on some mainstream shit, but we were signed by some people that really were all about the money and and um, we were getting that experience thrown into that experience firsthand. And so the band actually, just to make a long story short, the band ended up breaking up right around the time when the record came out, and you know we my grandmother got very sick and my brother and I moved back to New Haven to live in their house with them and take care of them, Hmm. uh, of my grandparents. And so, so yeah, so that was 2007 into 2008. So the, the Toka record came out in 2007. Um, band broke up. All the buzz that we had built and all that shit in LA was just kind of done, and um, we moved back. In you know, we were my brother in his early twenties. I was you know twenty six. My brother twenty four, and we moved back in with our grandparents out here, and uh, basically nursed my grandmother back to health till she could walk and and eat again on her own and um you know live somewhat normally after being um overdosed by a nurse who didn't understand her because she didn't speak english properly Mm. so it was this whole crazy situation um at that point my brother was just like completely kind of out on music he had been he had been named one of the top 10 progressive drummers in Modern Drummer magazine during that month when we moved back. 
Like we little literally got the Modern Drummer magazine. It's like a big deal for drummers or whatever. And uh, he, that same month, he was like, "All right, basically, I'm stopping music. It's, uh, you know, um, you know, I'm, I, I'm, the band's done. I'm just gonna take care of my grandmother." Um, but he had a solo record. He had a solo record that was finished, and it was inspired. It was largely inspired by like K Records and um, more like experimental indie folk kind of stuff, and yeah. a lot of and a lot more of the left left field hip hop stuff as well. Super melodic, and we wanted a, an outlet for it, and um, so just for that to come out, I, I decided I wanted to start some kind of label i started calling around other people i knew i started you know i, I talked to the label that i put out my um my first two records which is was a label based out of uh ohio and um they were originally called uh, beyond space entertainment then they were called net 31 and then they changed their name to Squid's Eye, and they became solely a Dayton, Ohio local label. They they told me, you know, we we can't we we love this stuff. We we want to help you out, but we're a Dayton, Ohio label. We will distribute and manufacture this for you, though. So I kind of have that. Um, I had that going for me, and then there was another label of our uh, that we basically helped our friends create in uh California called Grim Image and they they wanted the uh owner of Grim Image wanted to help us kickstart my brother's album as well and financially backed the first project hmm. so we were able to do all the things that that we weren't able to do in LA with uh, our band in LA, we really wanted to work with like a college radio promoter and you know certain publicists and 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 do things our own way in 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 circles that we knew knew would work. And the label kind of didn't really let us go there, so we had made some connections in LA and uh, and basically put them to work and tr tried it out and. That's how the label started. We we wanted a home for our family's um, music, my, for my brother, myself, and any of our friends. And then it just grew and grew and grew and and uh, became what it is. It's twelve years later now. So that was two thousand eight. Yeah, like distribution was you needed that really. I mean, TuneCore was new and everything. Like having physical distribution. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We had this kind of. Lucky, I I feel like we had this kind of lucky break early on, um, where we were we had collaborated with folks like from Anticon and the Shapeshifters and Project Blow, just from being fans and reaching out to them, or or having mutual friends, or or they were just interested in the music we were making because it was quite different from even what they were making, you know. So um so early on we started making these connections and the reason 
I was able to get a a distribution deal right when Fake Four was working was is because we had kind of this this minor cult status already because of records that we had done in the um, some years before. So in 2004 and 2006, I had released a couple of records. And, and uh, in 2001, one of my bands released a record that was distributed by Six Months Distribution, which was Anticon's distribution company. So all of that sort of... Um, sort of helped a lot, you know, saying that, like, I never really believe people when they say it's always DIY, you know? Right. It's always, like, do it together, and it's always, it's always, somebody's always helping you up. And, yeah, you might put a ton of work in it, but somebody, we help each other out. And so, um, yeah, in some ways, we were really lucky to be connected to the sort of scene, the the left field, progressive, underground hip-hop scene that we were connected to and that's sort of what led to our initial distribution having those names being attached to, to you know having some notoriety in the names helped us get other distribution deals um you know um i got a i was able to kind of cold call and get a canadian distribution deal on my own through a company called sonic onion and that was one of our first like wins as a as a label as well. And it sort of just went from there. Eventually we signed an international distribution deal with Red Eye USA and they're um they're the biggest indie distributor in the world, I think. Wow. So, That's awesome. That's huge. Of course, physical distribution started becoming less and less important, but at the time, as you said, at the time it was extremely important. Nowadays, what are the benefits of like the collective, and how do you how do you balance your time managing managing the label versus making your own music and focusing on your own art? That's a good question. So, um, at first, when we first started the label, the label was my number one art project. I had kind of put my own art aside in many ways. I was I was doing everything. I was doing. I was I had made the original little website. I was doing all the design. I um I was booking tours for the artists, dealing with the distributor, doing layouts for the everything, shipping everything myself as well. And over time, you know, it grew it grew and I realized I was sort of abandoning my art. And so I started getting help bit by bit. It started, the earliest bit of help came with Cars and Trains, my friend Tom, when he um, when he first started doing the web design for us. Then eventually other friends started helping me ship because the orders were getting bigger and bigger. And, and you know, art layout, my friend Michael Krigler, uh, time introducing Michael Krigler. So we had, we were building the team bit by bit and at some point we started I started hiring label managers the first label manager was John Wagner who was the drummer of Soul and the Skyrider band so mm. so we um you know and then Jeep Ward who is now working for 
for Red Eye, our distribution company, and now Dylan Owen. If you know Dylan, if you know Dylan Owen, is he's an artist out of New York, and he's he's doing very well in his in his own art. But he's been our most recent label manager. So I actually decided at some point to pay someone to to do the label management, so I could focus more on my own art. Now that it's got. Um it's got legs and has uh, reputations you've been able to kind of delegate to people. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I'm not saying that's easy. And a lot of times it's very complicated. Sometimes we're just barely keeping our head above the water. You know, it depends. I, I fuck. I mean, there are times when I've definitely thought we were going to go bankrupt or got stuck in predatory loans. Somehow we've made it work. I've, uh, I, I'd say a year ago, like was some of the most stressful, some of the most stressful times of my career. About a year ago, after I had like a really busy and incredible year. Um, by the end of that year, it was it felt like too much to uh, to keep together, you know. So, in some weird ways. This year has forced me to scale things back. And I already was planning on scaling things back in some ways, but it's made it more necessary to scale back and find other outlets, um, find other ways to pivot and get other sources of income. Um, our our friend Nikki, who handles a lot of our um, social media stuff she was the one who decided to create a twitch channel um you know we and that's become like a whole a whole another creative outlet for the label and that's been a really cool thing on its own so i don't know we it's just kind of taking it year by year that this industry changes so often that you sort of have to be flexible and ex- expect things to change all the chaos of growing up you know, during a time when there was like the Bay Area was was always changing, that you have to somehow f- have the inner strength and belief in your own music and ability to write songs and perform that drives everything because the machine is not going to carry that. Um, it's the other way around. And so you just have to be flexible and have people around you that that, I don't know, that motivate you, that you trust. And I think that's what's so hard about COVID is that these networks are really being tested and we've been blessed with the nerdcore like community that we've been able to do these streams and put stuff out and stuff and like but this but not being able to tour is hard and so yeah. like it's crazy that like I would have loved to have talked to you in real life and do this podcast in real life but it's like you do what you got to do right and how do you so I guess how do you find that strength in yourself and inspiration to anyone listening cuz I think that's a good note to end on cuz I feel like you're someone in the industry a lot of people see as like, yo, this dude made a name for himself, has an amazing show, and and is a respectable guy with a great community. And I'm I'm just saying that as like, how do you is that pressure to maintain that? And how do you like how do you drive yourself to keep getting better and better once you've achieved all this? You know what I mean? It's um, yeah, yeah. And uh, I, and one thing I really respect about the nerdcore community is that is that you're so tight knit, and and it's some of the most it's one of the most supportive communities I've ever seen and experienced since I've been able to play shows with my friends like Michael Kill and Mega Ran. And, you know, it's I've been able to see Samus. I've been able to see bits and pieces of that, 
you know, and I really respect that a lot. Um, but yeah, we we have Fake Four has built a, a really specific community as well, and and it's and mm. uh, it's a very supportive community. Um, emotionally, I think we're a lot of us are are there for each other. A lot of us are very open about our struggles with mental health issues. We're just uh, we're we're really there for each other in that way. Sometimes I I can't lie. It's it's really difficult for me to to stay positive and stay creative and stay active when I'm not um when I'm not on the road and I don't have immediate goals. Do you know what I'm saying? It's just yeah. It's just it really is difficult. Well, um, one of the things as I as I mentioned before, one of the things that keeps me fairly active is booking these um. Twitch performances because we do these uh, Fake Four Friday Twitch performances, and one of the things I've I've really looked forward to is is booking artists on there every Friday. It's kind of like it's kind of like going to a show every Friday for me, and um, and sometimes I perform and do these live stream things. At first, they were really really uncomfortable for me. I really didn't feel comfortable just playing to a camera and not really getting to interact with anybody but I got used to it and I yeah other things I've been doing during this time I've been doing a lot of writing outside of songwriting so I've been doing um, we started a fake four writing group my friend Brees who's a my friend Brees a poet out of Austin Texas she started it and we basically get on zoom and read poetry and prose and then do free writes for 20 minutes and that's we do that every other week. I've been doing other long form <laughs> writing things, just kind of challenging myself in 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 ways that I hadn't before. Sort of, yeah. I look at it as exercise and therapy at once. So, and I've also been doing therapy every week, which I can't. I, I that's been crucial for me. Um, all all of it on Facetime and plenty of technical difficulties and bullshit, but. All that's been crucial. I've sort of been one of the main things I've been doing is filling up my weeks with just ac- accountability practices. Like my friend Kaim and I will get on the phone for twenty minutes on Mondays or whatever, and maybe we'll be like, "All right, now do I'm going to do twenty push-ups. Yeah. All right, do twenty push-ups. I'm going to write uh, a poem. I'm going to I'm going to do it." A, a flyer for this podcast that I make it, whatever, you know, it's like we figure something out to do and push ourselves and hold each other accountable because, and it's exactly for the reason that you you mentioned is it's that it's harder right now to be, we're not seeing each other face to face. So these are ways for us to check ourselves and keep ourselves active. So those are some of the exercises I've been doing. The difference between being the performer you and the authentic true you and and then how that gets murky when there's money and business and just dealing with all this stuff that ever since I was a kid like you know there's when I'm a, when I'm performing what happens what how people re- respond to me versus when I'm re- performing versus when I'm like my true self and I think it's been a lot of breakthroughs honestly through all this <laughs> in that realm personally I don't think I was home for more than Two weeks at a time last year. Wow, man! It was, 
yeah, it was intense. And um, so I did start therapy at a necessity, mostly because my depression had gotten to the scary point. And um, so I started and I got insurance a year ago, November 2019. I got it back up and it was actually my roommate who called and made the initial appointment for me with this woman. Um, yeah, so after I had kind of like a manic breakdown and all this shit happened, um, and in a weird way, pandemics, that she wasn't able to do, um, my, she wouldn't, she wasn't able to charge my insurance for FaceTime or, um, virtual, uh, sessions. So it was only pandemic that's allowed me to do these sessions all the way out in California. Mm. So she was able to charge my insurance um, and keep things going weekly. And in, in some weird ways, pandemic has led to a lot of healthy lifestyle changes for me. So um, I'm thankful in some ways. In other ways, I, I really... <laughs> can't wait for it to get back to normal, you know? Yeah. You know, and I was thinking today that through the past five years or maybe 10 as social media and um, everything has be- made like human connections and the value of art and communication so mercurial and maybe devalued and so separated and siloed, there's now this realization that like behind you know, the people we follow or the people we're connected to are these actual human beings where like you're doing the fake four Twitch Friday shows and everything. Like there's this ability for us to um, reinvest in our humanity and our friendships and our connections in a way that will transcend. And I hope beyond just like a vestigial way um, transfer into the next year. I hope when things get normal that these online connections and these communities and these shows will in a way keep going like i hope the good things yeah do you feel me do you ever think about that i think about it all the time and it's also one of the most curious things that's happened during this time is that if i feel like people are more approachable in some ways some people that there's no way you could ever talk to or shared a stage with um like i've shared a i've shared a virtual stage with some of my heroes you know musical heroes that i never thought that would ever happen it's it's such an odd uh, thing that uh, that this pandemic has brought us closer together in certain ways. At the same time, um, and I and I and I do love that we've kind of created new communities out of it because of because of the situation. At the same time, I've also found that I I have to take major major breaks from social media. That it it'll like it'll just drive me insane. Um, yeah, just. I have it, it's just when you expect that instantaneous you know you have, you have when you have expectations at all I've, I've learned that expectations are are really not good to have my 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 motto for the year it might be my mantra from now on is no expectations I think goals are good I think dreams are good I think all that I need those things in my life. I need those to keep me on track. But expecting anything is never good. Mm. And um, 
one problem with social media, in my opinion, is that you you begin to to build expectations for yourself and for others, and um, because of the formats and because of the instantaneous gratification that it brings. And so um, I've had to, I've definitely had to check myself when I get too wrapped up in in my phone or screens because it's so easy to do during this time to just be completely engulfed. I'm, I would say that at the moment I need to figure out a break right now. You know, I mean, I need a, I need a break from screens right now. I've, I've been, yeah, I've been, I've been stuck in this mode where my attention span is so minimal that I'll start, you know, maybe trying to watch a film or something and be like, get to the fucking point. And I'll just like turn it off because I, I, I just have this, tiny shitty attention span that needs instant gratification and so um yeah so at moments like that i think we need little dopamine breaks or whatever resets and uh, i'm gonna get back on that tip and start just taking walks without my phone and and taking breaks from my phone and and erasing apps and doing things like that which i have been doing throughout this the course of this year and it's been helpful for a reset you know a book I read, man, like I, I totally relate to you on that. I read this book. Uh, my friend Brian, he's in a band called I Fight Dragons, and they're, he's, he nice. reads a lot of books. And um, do you know them? They're pretty dope. Yeah, yep, yep. Cool. He put me onto this Cal Newport, and it's called Digital Minimalism. And I read the physical book, and it's just awesome, dude, because it's about, it's about, it's about, he, he takes you through a 30 day thing of how to, do those things you're talking about. And um, like I took a break this summer and it, part of it was because when our son was born, like it was this exhausting to be constantly online, but it was, I recommend that book, man. Have you heard of him? Have you ever read Cal Newport? No, I haven't. I, I, I'll definitely check it out. Cause I'm, I'm interested in that stuff for sure. It's cool. And he goes into the science of it. And, and, and like you described like the instant gratification and, it's, it's, it's a funny transition because the next thing I was going to ask you is where people can follow you on social media. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we've gotten to this. I don't know. I, I never know what to say when people ask me that anymore because people pick and choose which social media platforms they, they use more than others, right? If they if they look up Chesky, C-E-S-C-H-I on any platform, I'll be there. Other than TikTok, I never signed up for that one. <laughs> I don't think. <laughs> yeah, Chesky or Chesky Ramos, my last name. Um, cool. But yeah, if you if you look up C E S C H I, you'll you'll find me. That's what's up. I thought it would be tight to end with um, electrocardiograms. Like to, I like to drop songs by my guests, unless there's another song you you want you want to promote. But I, I really do love that song. I'm curious, would this be a good one to go out on? Yeah, that's not that. I I love that one too. I'm glad you like it. Um, some people, it it's one of those funny ones where sometimes it rubs people the wrong way. It's like a little bit abrasive for some people, but I felt like that was a really important addition to the album for that reason. So um, I'm glad that you like it. <laughs> Electrocardiographs and the video for this is is dope. And um, yeah, man. Well, I've always, you know, for years I've known about you. It's always been cool when I've gotten to see you. Thank you, man. This has been like honestly pretty like an inspiring fun. Uh, episode. So thank you. Thank you, homie. Yeah, it was great, great chat. And then I loved that we got to uh, to bond on some Bay shit. That's so funny. <laughs> That's tight. I appreciate that a lot. Catholic schoolboys rule nine fingers to the sun. 
Happy you woke, I woke up fully clothed and broke as fuck So repressed that I cringe when British folks say the word cunt Systemically made us felons so we would never hold their guns Only hire shooters, never been to Hooters If this was Los Angeles in 92 I'd be a looter Kanye sends dick pics, I send dog pics How the hell am I 36 and so fucking defiant? Swam back to the trap, notice most trap rappers are clients Like clockwork, our country's blessed and obsessed with ultraviolence Working in the drug world, you see a lot of grown men crying I was actually born in July, most of these guys are Leo's lying Touch a lot of dollars all of it I owe to others Never wanted to fuck with crack after I saw it fuck my father This life has a lot to offer Sweet poisonous kisses from the lips of priests or devil's daughters Precious vixen mistresses quick to spit the vitamins Sick with several sicknesses Severing heads with liquid sedatives Sentiment slide like sedimentary mud These fuckers won't take me alive or touch what I've done Then I break in my prime and I'm too fat to run So I'll die, holy fuck Like the body of Christ inside of a nun's cunt No, 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 that's too much is supposed to pose as a poet not grow into another punch drunk punk Today I'm overthinking of a population that voted for Trump Of the one time in junior high when a little boy called me skunk Because he saw my skin was light but I wasn't white enough Thought English wasn't my mother tongue cause my family was Puerto Rican Suburban Connecticut kids laughed at a name that sounded foreign Never quite fit in with the other ones on the teacher's attendance list In California when I was 11 they asked me to talk Mexican Got so sick of explaining that eventually I just said yes, 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 that's fine Everything is a test, everything falls in line Like flat ones and electrocardiographs when we die Everything is a test, I against I against I In the meantime use those brains to redefine that life Everything is a test, everything falls in line like flat ones on electrocardiographs when we die Everything is a test, everything falls in line Like flat ones on electrocardiographs when we die Some artists are just so unique and passionate and original and you feel lucky to know them and you feel grateful that they exist in this world. And without being too hyperbolic, Chesky is one of those people. So... Shout out to you, man. Thank you for being on the show. Next month, we have another awesome rapper, Ritz, from Strange Music, who I've known almost 10 years. Um, yeah, 10, almost 10 years. He was on the Indie Rocket Science mixtape, and he's always been mad cool to me. I mean, he's just a great, cool dude. So that is next month. That podcast will be up Wednesday, April 7th. So check that out. We'll see you then. And in the meantime, hope to see you at the Four-Eyed Horseman concert later this month. That will be on March 27th. Love y'all. Thanks a lot. Peace.